0: Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 32. And my topic for discussion today is a little video that was produced and was making the rounds on social media uh, in the last couple of days by the Huffington Post and Gary Ross. Now, for those of you who don't know who Gary Ross is, he's a director, and he is the, he's an award-winning director, in fact. And um, he has uh, directed a new movie entitled The Free State of Jones. Now, his previous works were things like The Hunger Games and Seabiscuit, but now he's gotten into... Uh, well, Seabiscuit was a historical epic, but uh, or historical film, I should say. But now he's into another historical film, and he's covering uh, the war, which uh, the Civil War, I'll talk about that in a second, but he's covering that particular time period. If you're not familiar with The Free State of Jones, it's a film about a supposed county in Mississippi that seceded from Mississippi and formed its own state. Now, I'm not going to talk about the accuracy of that particular film or the story therein, but I'm going to talk about this little video that, that Ross put out, the Huffington Post put out. And Ross was the, uh, was the speaker in the video because the title of the video is Four Myths About the Civil War. Now, first, let's talk about Gary Ross. There's another interview that he did where he admitted that he had no understanding of this period of American history before he even started thinking about directing the film. Nothing. And uh, this is something that he had to do very quickly to try to learn about the war and uh, Reconstruction period. And so here's a guy that supposedly knew nothing about it, which I find true based on his comments, and now he becomes a so-called expert. Uh, And I find this very funny. Um, But uh, Gary Ross now is a hero for uh, the left generally, uh, because he's come out <clears throat> with this movie that supposedly crushes myths about the Civil War. So I'm going to go through these and some of the things he said in this little video, and I'll, I'll, put, I'll link the video uh, in the notes part of this particular uh, podcast, and also a, a book or two that I'm going to talk about. I'll, I'll put them up there as well. So first myth, he says uh, that the, the myth is si- the Civil War was not about slavery. And then he proceeds to, quote unquote, debunk this myth. Okay, so let's talk about this myth. Now, I realize that uh, there are people out there that would say the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery at all. Well, I think that's incorrect. Um, but you have to understand what we're talking about, what people are talking about when they say that. There are two things at issue here. There's the war, and then there's secession. The war was not about slavery. Uh, secession, the Deep South, particularly there, there were uh, several states in the Deep South. The original seven states that seceded from the from the Union and, and formed the original Confederacy uh, did say in their declaration of causes that the potential attack on slavery was one of the reasons, if not the reason, for some of them that uh, they were seceding from the Union. However. Ross says in the video that every southern state in their declaration of causes said they were seceding because of slavery. Well, this is simply not true. So he's already created a myth out of debunking the myth. Uh, This is simply not true. Virginia did not state that slavery was a cause of secession. Neither did Tennessee or Arkansas or North Carolina. These states were actually in the Union until Lincoln... Uh, called up 75,000 troops to put down the quote-unquote rebellion. And at that point, those states decided to secede from the Union because they would not allow the federal government to march troops through their states to coerce the South. And so they seceded not to defend slavery. They were slave states, but they seceded not to defend slavery, but to defend the principle of independence. And so I think what Ross is doing here is highly problematic. The other thing he said in this particular part where he said the Civil War is not about slavery is that Lincoln was anti-slavery. Now, Lincoln was not anti-slavery. Lincoln was against slavery in the territories, without a doubt. Uh, But Lincoln said, and and Ross says, quote, uh, well, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, do not confuse Lincoln's call to preserve the Union as a sign that the war was not about slavery. Well, th- what he's doing there is confusing secession with the war. The war was about saving the Union. Nothing more for the North, for most Northerners, and for most Southerners, the war was about independence. Now, granted, the South was a slaveholding republic. There's no doubt about it. But the war was about independence for them, and, and if you look at the records from... Uh, And and there's been books written on this particular topic, not by, quote-unquote, lost cause historians, but by what people would consider to be mainstream historians. And I'm going to mention a couple of them in a second. But if you look at the letters, the diaries, all the things that came out of both the North and the South, the prevailing opinion in the North was that the war was about saving the Union, not freeing any slaves, and that in the South... The war was about independence, fighting for their own independence, not about perpetuating slavery. Now, of course, you could find Southerners who said they were fighting for slavery. You could find Northerners who said they were fighting against slavery. Absolutely, you could find those things. But the dominant opinion was that the war in the South was for the preservation of independence and the war in the North was for saving the Union. So you cannot confuse the war with secession, the war did not have to come. Uh, and now people would say, well, but there would have been no war without secession. Well, this is true, but Lincoln did have a choice not to go to war. And he chose to go to war. So I think that what Ross is doing here is it's ingenious. I mean, it's ingenious. And, of course, the, the video I'm going to refer to, it's, it's well done. It's slick. It sounds good. Good, good background music. Nice imagery. But it's a complete and utter disaster when it comes to the content of the video. All right. So the second myth that he debunks, oh, well, he also says, let me go back to this first myth. First myth. The other thing that he says is that the um, the Republican Party was anti-slavery. Now, if you look at the platform of the Republican Party, it was anti-slavery in the territories. So what the Republican Party didn't want, at least the dominant opinion in the Republican Party, now there were abolitionists, stringent abolitionists in the Republican Party. What the Republican Party wanted was to keep slavery out of the territories. They were against the extension of slavery. They weren't necessarily uh, for the complete eradication of the institution, at least the dominant opinion in the Republican Party was that way. They were fine to let slavery exist in the South, and Lincoln himself said that, over and over again, even during the war, as late as 1865. He argued that uh, in the Hampton Roads Conference, that if the South would lay down their arms and come back in, they could essentially vote down the 13th Amendment, which would have kept slavery in the South. So Lincoln had said over and over again, well, you know what, Uh, I'm not fighting the war to end slavery. And he said this to Horace Greeley. Again, if I could end the war, if I could uh, preserve the Union without freeing the slaves, I would do it. If I could preserve the war with freeing the slaves, I would do it. I mean, his, his entire objective was saving the Union. Now, you can question what kind of Union that would be saved, because the Union that was saved was not the Union that was there in 1861, but Lincoln's goal, stated goal, was the preservation of the Union, not freeing slaves. Okay. Now, he also says, Ross's, I think myth number two, was that there was this monolithic South, and everyone in the South supported the Confederacy. And he said, this is just simply not true. There were great pockets of unionism, and uh, there were lots of people in the Confederacy that, uh, that didn't support the Confederacy. And uh, we have to stop thinking of this lost cause idea, and he actually uses that phrase. This has become a pejorative uh, same thing with neo Confederate. Uh, and people, well, that, if they can't think of anything, well, you're just a lost cause. You're just a neo Confederate. And that's, that's, what they, that's, their, that's what they go to. Uh, and of course, uh, Tom Woods has done a very nice job with this in his neo Confederate video. And I'll link to that too. If you haven't seen that, it's one of the funniest things you'll ever see. But, anyways, so he, he pulls out the, the lost cause pejorative and says, uh, well, this is just a myth of the lost cause. So let's talk about this, uh, this popular support for the war, both North and South. And I'm actually going to compare two films. Right now, The Free State of Jones has gotten all kinds of publicity because it shows conclusively, people say that uh, the South was not monolithic and there, were, there was dissent in the South, and we're going to destroy this lost cause myth. That is the, that essentially what Ross is saying is one of the stated goals of the film. So we're going to st- destroy the lost cause myth. There was another film that came out not long ago, um, and uh, from an acclaimed director, Ron Maxwell, and the title of the film was or is Copperhead. Now I think it would be fun to talk about these two films side by side, and maybe at some point I'll do that. But Copperhead was about union. Descent in the Union during the war, and this film didn't get any publicity at all. So you have a position here where Ross is producing a film. Now, apparently this film is flopped. Uh, The box office, it is flopped. Nobody's going to watch it. So I almost hesitate to to give the guy any publicity whatsoever. Um, But you have Copperhead, which is very good, a very good film. Uh, it has prominent actors in it. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a nice examination of northern descent during the war. And then you have Free State of Jones, which gets all this publicity and has Matthew McConaughey in it. And supposedly it's, it's the accurate de- depiction of the, of the war in the South. Well, no one has ever said that there wasn't some descent in the Confederacy during the war. Of course there was. You can go back and find lots of people who didn't want to fight for the South, uh, lots of people who weren't in favor of secession. I mean, even the vice president of the Confederacy himself wasn't in favor of secession. Alexander H. Stevens, he wasn't in favor of it. He didn't think it was a good idea. You can debate whether it was a good idea at the time. Uh, And there were definitely people across the South who didn't favor the war, or at least secession, the same held true in the North, and in fact, I think what you'll find is that if you really do look at the, at the documentation, the unity in the South was much stronger for the war effort than it was in the North, absolutely much stronger, and I'm going to point to one book. Now, as far as what they fought for, what the soldiers fought for, I would recommend uh, James McPherson's For Cause and Comrades. Now, James McPherson is no lost cause neo Confederate historian. James McPherson is the as as mainstream as you can get. He is as mainstream as you can get, and his book For Cause and Comrades uh, is uh, is excellent on this particular topic. He he says exactly what I've been saying. Yes. There were people in the South who were fighting for slavery. Yes, there were people in the North who were fighting against slavery. But the majority in both sections were not. Now, he does say after 1863 that uh, many Union soldiers decided that at that point, after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, that uh, fighting to end slavery was a noble cause. And so many became uh, interested in ending the institution through the war. But he also notes that in 1863, when the proclamation was issued, there was large-scale opposition to it, and that many people deserted or dissented, uh, and that you had, uh, across the North, large-scale opposition to that particular war aim, because until 1863, there was no ending slavery war aim whatsoever. So, read McPherson's For Cause and Comrades. It's very good. Okay? Now... Uh as far as Southern unity in the war effort, there's a book that was put out uh, by a historian. Now, I got another, another mainstream historian named Gary Gallagher. Gallagher. Gary Gallagher teaches at Penn State. He even says in his introduction to this book he's going to be accused of being a lost cause partisan. He's not. Uh, he has spoken very disparagingly about the Confederacy. He's not pro-Confederacy at all. But he wrote a book. And what is his stated in the introduction is to go after this idea that the South didn't have unity in this particular war effort. And I'm going to quote from this book. He says, quote, Often lost is the fact that a majority of white Southerners steadfastly supported their nascent republic and that Confederate arms more than once almost persuaded the North that the price of subduing the rebellious states would be too high. He says, Although class tension, unhappiness with intrusive government policies, desertion, and war weariness all form part of the Confederate mosaic, they must be set against the larger picture of thousands of soldiers persevering against mounting odds, civilians enduring great human and material hardship in pursuit of independence, and Southern white society maintaining remarkable resiliency until the last stages of the war. So he says very distinctly and very and unequivocally that the the title of this book is "The Confederate War that that Southern will to fight was extremely high, and the fact that three out of four white Southerners fought in the war shows that um, you had a seventy five percent of the South was willing to fight for the war and so. There's no way. I mean, this, this film is going to supposedly debunk the myth that uh, everyone supported the Confederacy. Nobody's ever said that. Nobody's ever said that. But Southern support for the war was higher. And as Gallagher says, we have to compare this with uh, other wartime movements in the United States. What you'll find in the South is that Southern support for the war, the only, really the only war that you could say where this type of support for a war was equal was World War II. Uh, where you had a strong will to fight the war. You had substantial dissent in virtually every major American war, more dissent than what you found in the Confederacy. In fact, when you look at even secession and the popular conventions that supported it, uh, the vote for secession was higher and for independence was higher than what you had during the American War for Independence. So support for the war was tremendous across the South, and the sacrifices Southerners were willing to make for the war effort were uh, I mean almost superhuman at times. So Ross has already created another historical faux pas, and again, the Huffington Post picked up on this and they thought, well, we're gonna we're gonna expose this lost cause mythology. And uh, I mean, the real the real mythology is that there was this unified popular support in the North. It was far less in the North than it was in the South. And actually, Gary Gary Gallagher followed up the Confederate War with the Union War where he again says, look, most Northerners are fighting to save the Union. Most people in the North were saying we're fighting for the Union, not, not to end slavery or not about slavery. And so here he's not a lost cause or neo-Confederate historian. He's simply pointing out that the record, the record suggests that. Uh, and um, it's, it's amazing to me how people would say this is somehow fabricated by Southerners. Uh, for years, historians were simply looking at the record, and this is what the record showed them. So we've gotten into a a, a revisionist stage again in historical uh, scholarship. What what you have to understand about history is there you know, <laughs> history is essentially uh, interpretation and how you view sources and records. So one person can look at one source and say it means one thing, and another person can look at the source and say it means another. I think there is a truth in history, but oftentimes what you find is that history involves interpretation. And the best historians will expose their bias up front, and then they'll tell you what their bias is, and they'll not present things as, as facts. Now, I think that there can be consensus, and in, in Gallagher's case, in McPherson's case, they all agree that uh, slavery was a very important component of the Southern cause, uh, particularly the, the Lower South. Okay, Uh, but when you start saying these other things, now you're starting to cause some problems in your interpretation, like Gary Ross is doing. All right, Uh, he says that uh, one of the other myths is that uh, slaves had freedom after the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, he's correct that he says this is false. He's entirely correct because, first of all, the Emancipation Proclamation did not free one slave. That's not what he says, though. Uh, His point is that after the Emancipation Proclamation... Uh, the South did everything they could to ensure that slaves did not have their freedom. Now, again, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in 1863. It didn't free any slaves. It wasn't until the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that slavery ended. And that was not ratified until December of 1865. So, uh, what Ross has done here is, is confuse some things. And he says, now he attacks Andrew Johnson at this point, saying that. Well, it was, you know, slaves didn't have former slaves were basically put back in slavery in the South because of Andrew Johnson's policies. He repatriated Southerners and gave them back their lands. First of all, lands were never confiscated. Uh, there was never a confiscation policy by the Union Army. Now, uh, certain plantations were occupied by Union soldiers, and so in that particular way, uh, yes, some land was confiscated, but it was never given to any slaves, ever. There was the 40-acre of the mule myth that was created by Field Order Number no. 15 in Missouri, and uh, John Charles Fremont, but he was immediately smacked down by Abraham Lincoln and said, you can't do that. There was never a union policy of confiscation, ever, to where it was the policy of the union government that southern lands would be confiscated. So Ross here is creating this very interesting uh, non-history of the war, and then he attacks Johnson, saying, "Well, it's because of his blanket amnesty policies that all these Confederate soldiers repatriated and given their lands back." Johnson's emancipate—I'm sorry—amnesty am- policy was more stringent than Lincoln's amnesty policy. If Lincoln had survived April 1865 and had remained president, was not assassinated, the general consensus for years was that Reconstruction would have been much more lenient then Andrew Johnson's Reconstruction, and of course, Congressional Reconstruction. So, uh, this is funny that uh, Ross is going out and saying, well, it's all because of Andrew Johnson that uh, slaves weren't freed. He was simply following Lincoln's amnesty plan with some more stringent modifications. Now, certainly the Congressional Republicans didn't want Lincoln's amnesty plan to be put into effect, and... I'll only explain what Lincoln's amnesty plan was. It was uh, was essentially that uh, if you said, if you were not a high-ranking Confederate official, for example, if you weren't Jefferson Davis or Robert E. Lee, you could take an oath of amnesty and all is forgiven. And his 10% plan allowed for the states to, quote-unquote, re-enter or resume their status in the Union if 10% of the 1860 voting electorate took the oath of allegiance to the United States. All it took was 10%. 10%. It was a very lenient plan of Reconstruction. And uh, Lincoln's plan was nowhere near as harsh as Johnson's. I mean, Johnson was much more punitive in going after uh, particularly high-ranking Confederate officials. He was not interested at all at giving these people uh, their... Uh, their jobs back, so to speak. Now, Alexander H. Stevens was able to uh, take his oath of amnesty and was elected by Georgia to go serve in the Congress. He wasn't seated there, and that's one of the uh, factors that led to congressional reconstruction because the Republicans in Congress could legally not seat people that they deemed weren't worthy to sit in their body. And so they were not going to seat these former Confederate officials, and uh, that started the battle between the executive branch and uh, the Congress, even though that battle was apparent before Lincoln was killed, because you had the Wade Davis bill, which was much more uh, uh, stringent in terms of how these states were going to be reconstructed, and Lincoln pocket vetoed that bill. So it's amazing to me how Ross, again, is, is making things up here. He's making things up. And then he says, and this is, uh, he's obviously been reading a heavy dose of Eric Phoney, um, and he says that um, Reconstruction is, uh, was uh, Reconstruction ended, or something to that effect, where Reconstruction um, was, uh, was essentially not uh, successful. And he said, no, Reconstruction was killed. And the implication is that, and he says this, well, not implication. I mean, he says it outright. It's violence against blacks that ended Reconstruction. Well, this is simply not true. Uh, reconstruction was opposed in the North, uh, in fact, in 1876, when uh, Rutherford B. Hayes was elected president in a in a disputed election, one of his campaign planks was to end Reconstruction. So was Samuel Tilden's in 1876, um, and I think uh, you know Tilden won that election. Actually, there was fraud that put Hayes in, in office, and there was almost war at that point. But everyone was getting tired of Reconstruction, North and South, and. Any violence that was uh, perpetuated against blacks in the South, uh, and and he mentions the Klan, Uh, there were other organizations in the South that were uh, using violence against uh, African Americans. It did happen. Uh, There's no doubt about it. But the Klan itself was disbanded in 1868, uh, and when the Congress held uh, meetings or testimony on this particular topic, Uh, because they had passed the Ku Klux Klan Acts and they were trying to go after people who were engaging in vigilante justice in the South, the record indicates that they really couldn't find uh, any leaders of this particular organization. There's not a whole lot of of evidence out there. Uh, Now, we do know that violence occurred, but finding that this was a concerted policy or there was a top-down policy is very difficult to do. What's often ignored about this particular period is that there was also armed camps against these people, uh, and they were called the Union Leagues. And the Union Leagues were just as vicious in uh, maintaining the status quo in the South at that point. And when I mean status quo, the Reconstruction government. So they were burning barns and burning property, and uh, they were uh, going, engaging in violence against people who were against uh, the their Reconstruction policies in the South. So you basically had two armed camps in the South that were fighting it out. Uh, and to say that Reconstruction ended because of violence is simply not true. Reconstruction ended because the North got tired of it. Uh, now, I could actually say that Reconstruction didn't end. I think that the myth is that Reconstruction ended in 1877. It didn't. Uh, Reconstruction was ongoing, And you have to say, well, what are we talking about in Reconstruction? Well, I think this is where the Dunning School of Historians had it more accurate when they said that uh, Reconstruction was a complete recreation of the United States. There's not only the social effects of Reconstruction, but there's also the political, the economic, the constitutional. And when Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2009— he made a statement that we're going to continue remaking America and he was 100% accurate at that point because the process by which America has been remade this is exactly this is essentially one of the points in my book 9 presidents who screwed up America is that the constitution has been completely trounced since the since the 1860s generally by the executive branch now uh, it didn't start in the 1860s but the executive branch has been the the primary factor in the destruction of the constitution so uh, yes, Reconstruction did not end in 1877. I agree, that's a myth. It, it hasn't ended yet. It's ongoing. We have a new union, and that's what the Republicans were saying after the war, that we're going to create, you know, forge a new union. They used that term. And uh, we've seen this process. It's it's ongoing. So this is just a silly video. Uh, and it's, it's <laughs> he not, he's not debunking any myths. He's creating his own myths, And supposedly debunking myths. And I think this is a real problem. Uh, When you start looking at historical scholarship and you start looking at even popular history and other things, uh, when you have a, a situation where you can't even have debate on these particular issues, and, I mean, this is the definitive history right here. Boom, this is it. What I say, I'm Gary Ross and I directed a movie and therefore I am right. And all these other people who've said otherwise, they are all wrong. Well... Uh, we know this. We know that's simply not true, uh, and and there are people that isn't going to disagree with what I'm saying, and that's okay. This is why we have, uh, you know, historical debate. It's what makes history fun, because we can debate these topics. So I would highly recommend going out and and uh, there was actually another book. Uh, Thomas Fleming, um, came out with a book recently entitled A Disease in the Public Mind, and uh, it's, a, it's a book about the war. And Now, Fleming is, uh, I think he's in his 80s now, and he's written a number of popular histories, and essentially what he does in this book is uh, attack uh, the radical elements on both sides uh, for bringing about the war. This is kind of the blundering generation thesis. Uh, but he's, he's going after uh, you know, radical abolitionists and, 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 and their position. He's also going after, um, he does go after uh, radical secessionists. Uh, but he places a lot of blame on the polarization uh, of the polity in the 1850s for bringing about the war. And he attacks people that he says were not really, they, they, were, they were blundering into war uh, and the war didn't have to happen. People like Avery Craven and others, who I've already talked about in this podcast, had that position. So, uh, but I, re- I remember reading reviews about this or people saying, this is why I'm always going to write history, because this garbage is produced. And he's been called a neo-Confederate lost causer. I mean, Thomas Fleming is not that. I mean, this is how silly the other side is. They, they don't believe in debate. They don't believe in, uh, in having any honest discussions about things. It's just their way, or there's no way— and they're even denouncing people that are mainstream historians in the process. Um, we're not talking about people that are on the fringe of history here. You know, oftentimes, like, I mean, I would be considered on the fringe of historians because, uh, you know, I write popular histories. Uh, but um, I do have a PhD in history. Uh, I've, st- I've studied this particular period quite extensively. So um, it, it's not that, uh, you know, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. Gary Ross has none of the above qualifications. Uh, he's a film director, and now he's become an expert somehow. But obviously from his video, he's no expert at all. And I think that's the great danger of, of getting your history through film because oftentimes you're going to be let down. In fact, one of the, one of the classes I often taught uh, my college students was a class on the historical accuracy of films. And it was a lot of fun because it's very hard to find films that are historically accurate. It's, I mean, if, if you're going to get your history from a film... Or from a director, you're lost already. Um, so, go out there and read stuff. Uh, you know, there's there's people that would disagree with what I'm saying here, uh, and and so read those things too, and come up make your own make your own conclusions, draw your own conclusions about what you read. But be very careful about getting your history from people like Gary Ross and the Free State of Jones, uh, because what you're going to find is that you're going to be disappointed in the accuracy of those things. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.